was a good rest in that jack cave. What's been going on? <laughs> well, isn't that what you say after you've been in hibernation for a while? A very long time. That's what we'll call this. Uh, we Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Wages of Cinema! Woo-hoo! I'm Jack, and I was with me... Trash Panda Corey. Yay! Yes, uh... Uh, we, if you've been waiting on us for a podcast for a while, we apologize. I wish I had a better excuse. It's just life. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe sometimes, uh, uh, not enough to say and, you know, maybe dashed plans for other episodes. But that's all in the past. We're here today with a brand spanking new episode full of cinema content that you can put in your ears. And if you have eyes that have ears, then you can do that. Yeah, and we've got something very special for the people today. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think, a good time as any to, um, you know, I, I think, you know, this isn't exactly like a best of 2020 podcast, but we're going to be talking about some movies that definitely did make my list of 2020. And there's even probably one movie that I could say is the first great film of 2021. A little bit of teasing right there. You have to keep listening to find out what that is, what I'm talking about. Um, but what we decided to do, because um, I guess the the best of 2020 kind of passed us by, was to talk about the eight nominees for Best Picture. Yes. And what Jack has done is he has ranked all eight of them. <laughs> so what we're going to do today is we're going to count down his ranking from number eight to number one, ranking the Best Picture nominees. Yes, and now I'm just spreading out so I can, you know, have a good, you know, ranking face and, <laughs> and ranking tone. Uh, you give great ranking face. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, now I'm just trying to imagine back to, like, when Siskel and Ebert used to do their, like, Best of the Year episodes, they had ranking face. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're more professional than that. Um, yeah, so again, get ready for talk about, you know, maybe these are movies that you have seen or haven't seen. Um, I actually, what's interesting though, looking at this list, I somehow, despite everything that's happened in the past year, um, I managed to see six of the eight of these movies in the theater. Your commitment to the cinema is unparalleled. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you could say that probably not advisable i don't you know i'm not saying i'm i'm very you know i'm i'm not saying i'm like the chief of movie dumb for doing this or whatever um you know obviously i tried i took all the precautions and tried to be safe and when possible also you know tried to be the only one in the movie or the only one in the movie with someone else special who you may be hearing on this podcast as well <laughs> um but yeah, and so like it, it was actually kind of surprising thinking about how. And one of the movies I just saw today, so that's why I knew I was ready to do this. And uh, yeah, so we're gonna count down again from my least favorite to most. And uh, as we go on, uh, you know, you'll we'll also talk because we've seen a few of the movies together. Yes. And one we even reviewed before. Yes. So basically. If it's a movie that we've both seen, I will also weigh in on what I think of it. If it's only a movie you've seen, I mean, obviously, you will take the brunt of the conver- of the discussion. But 
I'm totally comfortable feeling opinionated about things I have no right to have opinions on. <laughs> now, before we get to your number eight movie, my question for the people. Would you give all eight of these movies at least a three out of five on the star scale? So would you give all eight of them a thumbs up? All but one. The first one that I'm going to talk about. Okay. So all of these movies, except for maybe the first one, I'd say are either good to great movies. So... You know, there's going to be, you know, there'll be some criticism thrown about here and there, but there'll also be, you know, a lot of praise. Um, and again, once you, once we get to like the, the last three or even four movies, you know, it's just mostly going to be a love fest with a couple maybe nitpicks here and there. Um, so I'm going to, so we'll get, let's get right into it. So, uh, the first movie that we're going to talk about is, uh, Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Oh, I got opinions about this, so I'm going to have to, like, keep myself calm and let you do the talking. Because I saw some of this movie. Yeah, you, you well, you did the kind of thing where I was watching the movie one day, and I don't know, I, I don't know why, I'm actually curious, why didn't you, like, just watch the full movie or watch it on your own? Here's the thing. I consider myself a partial Aaron Sorkin fan. We watched the first four seasons of The West Wing many years ago, back in the day, and mm -hmm. I liked them. I really liked the movie The Social Network. Yeah, I'm a fan. Um, I like a number of the scripts he's written for movies. We, uh, uh, how about his work on Malice? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> we stand for Malice I, in this house. Of course, we think. I think of Malice before I think of, like, Few Good Men or Moneyball. You know, I think about... <laughs> Alec Baldwin's I Am God speech. <laughs> but yeah, I like A Few Good Men. I like the movie The American President. So The newsroom, not so much. The newsroom is terrible. <laughs> it's an embarrassment we watched that show for two seasons. But my problem is I don't think Aaron Sorkin is bad. I think he's quite talented. However, I thought he was a poor match for this material. Yeah, well, the thing about this movie, so for those who don't know, The Trial of the Chicago 7, um, it's, uh, I guess you could call it a biopic, uh, you know, mo historical movie, uh, and, and much in, you, you know, much in Aaron Sorkin's wheelhouse, of course, you know, big uh, courtroom drama uh, centered around uh, the the people who were part of, uh, and some of, you know, some of them were together, and then you had let me try to run down the names. I don't remember them all, but the main ones were Abby Hoffman. Um, oh, Tom Hayden, Tom Hayden. And Oh, who is, um, who's Jeremy strong? Oh, uh, you have like, cause the problem is it's like, people remember Abby Hoffman. People remember uh, Hayden. And they also remember George, uh, not George, Bobby seal, who actually wasn't part of the yippies as they were called. They were kind of like this, Jerry kind of Rubin. Group. Jerry, Jerry, that's who I was thinking of. Thank you. Yeah, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin. Those were the two big guns. And then uh, Hayden was really the guy who was more like, I'm going to try to be the squeaky clean cut guy who, you know, one day is going to be, uh, you know, in, in actual government. Um, and, you know, they were put on trial, you know, kind of in a, a show type of way uh, because, you know, when the, you know, the big clash and, Riots happened in Chicago at the uh, Democratic National uh, Convention. Um, you know, the, the the Johnson administration at the time decided not to prosecute. But then as soon as Nixon got in, it was like a totally different ball game. And it was basically, 
Um, again, it's been actually now a few months since I've seen the movie, but if I remember correctly, the whole idea is we're going to make a big thing about they all incite a riot and, you know, their actions are going to be, you know, we're going to, they're going to pay for what they've been doing with this, even though they were there, you know, to just, you know, to, to protest the Vietnam war and all the actions going on with that. The thing about, so the thing about this movie is that, you know, it has a pretty stacked cast. Yes. You know, you look at the list of cast people and you immediately go like, oh yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Oh, oh wow. Was, you know, like, I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen, who is, I believe the one actor that's nominated uh, at the Oscars. He's up for best supporting actor for Hoffman. Uh, he's there. You have Frank Langella as the other Hoffman in the movie, <laughs> the judge, Julius Hoffman. Um, it's a very showy part. Um, you have, uh, uh, Jeremy Strong, as I mentioned, as Jerry Rubin, uh, Eddie Redmayne as as Tom Hayden, uh, who you know Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, um, Michael Keaton shows up in a, in a few scenes. Uh, I mentioned Langella. Oh, that um, oh, I'm now blanking on his name. Uh, he he he's like Mateen, I think is his last name. Uh, the yeah, guy. Yeah, Abdul Mateen. Thank the you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Corey. Good. High five. Yay. Uh, she's helping me on the phone to remember some of these names. Uh, yeah, he plays Bobby Seal. He's actually quite good. Um, but the thing about the movie is that it's... I, I... You know, a lot of the stuff that you know that Sorkin can do well is there, but it, it almost feels like this needed someone who had more edge and bite to them. Someone who could look at this story that is really about, you know, some very, you know, controversial ideas and topics. Now you have, um, everything involving the, uh, you know, the, this radical group and, you know, government suppression and free speech. And yet Sorkin is not really cut out for that. He, he's more of a slightly wishy-washy kind of, uh, you know, filmmaker. Yeah. I was, texting with a mutual friend of ours about this movie months ago when you watched it. And what I said to them was that in Aaron Sorkin's universe, the political spectrum ranges from John McCain to Bill Clinton. <laughs> like, yeah. Aaron Sorkin, when he writes politics, I think he writes it in a way that smooths all the edges off of things and turns everything into clever little pitter-patter. Yeah. God, just you mentioned it just got bad image in my head. Do you think that like that 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 probably like you know the last thing that John McCain did before he died, where like he you know famously he gave like the thumbs down to repealing uh, the, the Affordable, Affordable Care Act? Yeah. You think somewhere Aaron Sorkin was just growing a giant erection at that? Yes, <laughs> no doubt. For like that like super rare moment where like a Republican does the right thing. Yeah, um, so yeah. Aaron Sorkin writes in a way that I feel like leeches a lot of the well, anger and grit and conflict and pain out of politics. And I think he's a very poor person to write about political radicals. Well, it's also that it's it's not... Well, he can have a lot of talent when, you know, there are a lot of scenes in this movie where you see two, you know, men in a room arguing the fuck with each other 
and that's you know that can be compelling but i but it doesn't build up to these people feeling like lived in human beings and we're going to talk much later in the podcast about another movie which has you know covers a, a, a basically the same time but a different milieu you know another movie about you know the government basically being complete bastards with you know a radical group but in this case Aaron Sorkin he he sands the edges off like and he also doesn't represent history in a way that if you know a little bit about the history it it it's very much not it and even if you don't i think you can sense something is off and like for example he does show something which did happen but he kind of soft pedals it to give an example Bobby Seale, again, he was he was actually he was part of the Black Panthers. He was not part of again the Yippies, but he was there in Chicago, you know, at the DNC. Uh, but he got pulled into this trial. You know, he didn't have his own lawyer with him. You know, the other lawyers that were representing Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin. Oh, that's another actor. That's actually probably one of the best guys in the movie. Um, uh, Mark Rylance. Uh, he he's there. Um, God, well, who did he play? Can you mind me? William. Oh, Kunstler. Right. Kunstler. That's such name. a. Yeah. <laughs> God, do you think he ever got like looks in like the <laughs> playground? <laughs> hey, Kunstler. Every day. Yeah. Every day. Yeah, he probably thought I just thought it sounded like counselor. All right. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. So Bobby Seale keeps on, you know, exploding about, you know, I want my lawyer. I want, I want, you know, something done. And Julius Hoffman got to the point where he, you know, he was already kind of an irascible son of a bitch. And he got Bobby Seale basically bound and gagged, you know, in his seat. And in real life, in the trial, this actually, he was there for days until finally Hoffman's like, let him go and, you know, his charges were dismissed as part of that thing. Um, uh, but, you know, in this movie, it's like they bound him, gag him, and like 30 seconds later, the prosecution's like, Your Honor, this is really out of line. We don't, we can't stand for this. And Hobbins like, Yeah, you're right. Okay. Get, you know, stop this now. And it's like, Okay, that is a disturbing image, but it almost seems like it's there. Well, because someone would say, like, Why didn't you show that? But then you still stop it to keep you know and you could say like well you gotta keep the movie going but that would have been actually a pretty you know compelling and provocative thing to keep seeing him in that seat in the courtroom and everyone just keeps looking at him like what are we going to do about this and Aaron Sorkin doesn't deal with that he doesn't deal with any of the racial implications that were there in that case yeah this Aaron Sorkin gives us the smooth jazz version <laughs> of the trial of the oh, Chicago 7. Oh, and also, like, clearly the words that he puts into Abby Hoffman's mouth when he's, like, on the stand. Ridiculous. You saw, Absolutely ridiculous. And you, yeah, you saw that scene, I think. And, like, again, I'm not, like, a super expert on Abby Hoffman, but I've seen Steal This Movie. I've, you know, I've seen... You know the animated movie Chicago Ten. I know a little bit about them. That did not sound like how Abby Hoffman talked. Yeah. So my relationship to this movie is: this was not a movie you saw in theaters. You watched this on Netflix. Yeah. I sat down with you 
watched the first 40, 40, 45 minutes of it, and then I was like, yep, my misgivings about Sorkin and this material were totally justified, then I tapped out, but then... <laughs> It's not I, like I had anything else to do, so I came back then, and I watched, like, the last 40 minutes of the movie. Yeah, well, the thing is, the script itself, I think in another director's hands, uh, maybe could have gotten some kind of different perspective. Like, And the funny thing is, I think I might have told you this, that the person who was actually attached to direct this, and I think he tried to do it maybe... 12 or 13 years ago, like this script's been around for a while was Steven Spielberg. And that's, that would have been quite a movie. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I would have been really curious to see that, especially if like, there's anything like Lincoln or something. But, um, but the thing is Sorkin, you know, it's one thing with him as a writer, he's, you know, clearly very much into an artificial style that you can tell, it's him when you when you listen to it. In a way, you know, that's kind of the pleasure of it. You yeah. you can tell immediately, oh, okay, Sorkinese, you know, come walk with me. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, you know, come walk with me, Liz Lemon. Um, <laughs> but, it, but as a director, it, it's he's very stock. He's very bland. Like, he doesn't, you know, like, oh, my God, do you want to know if it's 1968? Here's a, here's a little clip of a speech at the beginning with Martin Luther King. And montage, Vietnam, blah, 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 blah. It's like, come on, man. Like, do, give me something different. Try to do something with the camera, at least. Like, you know, I've, I've seen episodes of Law and Order that look, like, more polished <laughs> this. Yeah, so, again, I watched, I missed, like, the whole middle hour of this movie. But I mm -hmm. found it bland. It and uninspiring. The thing about the movie, though, is that a lot of it's actually fairly watchable at, at times. Like, again, certain actors will come in, like Michael Keaton comes in. Uh, again, if you decide to watch the movie, you'll you'll see what character he plays. And, and there, But you know, some actors stand out pretty decently. I mean, Mark Rylance, you know, he couldn't give a bad performance if he tried. I mean, Abby, you know, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is good, but, you know, you could tell he's not really nailing that accent the whole time. His performance is a lot, you know? but then Abby Hoffman was a lot. No, and that's so. fair. That's fine. Even I'll give Eddie Redmayne is actually okay through a lot of it. What kind of killed the movie was the ending. Oh, me. the last scene of this movie is horrible. And you talk horrible. and like you talk about how someone can change, you know, history in a movie to be like a complete bullshit Hollywood, you know, whatever burger. And that's what happens at the end of this, where you have, uh, you know, in the endings, you know, before, I guess, I, I forget if they read the, I think they read the verdict or they're about to. And Tom Hayden gets up and like reads the names of spoilers, by the way, he like reads the names of like all the, uh, Vietnam, like P Americans have died in Vietnam or something like that, and everybody in the courtroom starts applauding. Even the prosecutors are like, "Yeah, good work," and yeah. all that. Okay, like, yeah, right. Like that's what happened there, and the music swells, and it's just like, why? Like, 
And the, and the funny thing is, this ha- this actually ca- did happen, but he also read the names of Vietnamese soldiers that got killed. And yeah. they're not going to show that. Hallmark would be insulted by the last <laughs> scene of this film. Yeah, like, there's even a moment with, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt where it's like, he's, you know, he does that thing that you see in these at the end of these movies. It It was laughably bad. And that's the th- it's like sometimes you get an ending to a movie that kind of sours the rest of the experience, even though it actually wasn't that bad of a movie overall. It was decent. It was, you know, the kind of, you know, sl- fairly typical what you call Oscar bait, basically. It turned this story that involves these that involved these people who were really trying to say something and try to make some type of impact and it's like wonder bread can i read you a short quote which i think is the perfect summation of the trial of the chicago seven yeah all right this is from jamel Bowie's letterbox oh good account yeah uh, he's, he's a reporter with the new york times by the way do you like boomer nostalgia treacly inspirational nonsense and a fully unleashed Aaron Sorkin, then you'll love this movie, which is too well cast to be unwatchable, but also doesn't deserve a minute of your time. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'd say that. I mean, if you guys are really curious about it and, you know, I know maybe you are a sucker for these kinds of, you know, seemingly inspirational pieces of Hollywood pablum, then, you know, I guess, again, it's on Netflix, so it's not like you have to go out of your way to buy it, but it's it's definitely not something that I'm, you know, very pleased to see among, like, the Best Picture nominees. Like, it's this year's Green Book. <laughs> Actually, no, I, I take the Green Book was worse than this movie, but it's still in kind of that camp of like what is this <laughs> you know like i and the funny thing is you have sasha baron cohen who again who is actually nominated for a different oscar uh this year uh weirdly enough for a movie we're not going to talk about but is clearly much much better than this and has more to say about america right now which is uh you know borat subsequent movie film yeah best screenplay is there anything else you want to say about your number eight film um, oh yeah, well, oh, by one last thing, Jeremy Strong is uh, Chami Chong. Woo! <laughs> okay. All right, guys, so now we're going to move on to the next movie. Again, we're actually not going to talk about this one for super long, because we actually did a full review of it, uh, actually in early December. Uh, so this is like the one Oscar nominee for Best Picture that we have a separate episode review for, so we encourage you to check that out, but we'll talk about it for a minute. Um, which is uh, Mank. Yes. Mank. Mank is ranked. (laughs) (laughs) You are the weakest Mank. Goodbye. (laughs) Um, No, well, it's worth mentioning with this one, this actually has the most nominees of any of the best picture. It has 10. And, you know, with this one, again, we, we talked about how, like, I like this movie more than you did. I actually think it's, a good movie. I have a long pause there with emphasis on like, you know, good, 
Like, it's not, like, anything that you should rush. also rush out to see. Also on Netflix. But I, I did like Gary Oldman in it a lot. I liked Aaron, Amanda Seyfried quite a lot in it. Um, I do think it has a lot of, you know, very unfortunate, like, stylistic quirks. Um, oh, by the way, one of the nominees, best sound design. Oh, God. Don't punch the wall, please. I, you'll, hurt, you'll hurt your tiny fist. We did an entire podcast about this, so I don't want to belabor it. I thought this movie was terrible. I actually thought it was worse than The Trial of the Chicago 7, a movie I didn't even watch all of. Uh, see, I wouldn't really go there, because I, I think at least... I, I I appreciate when a director does have like a really strong vision, and I think Mank has that. It's, And I think the... How, at least the look of the movie mostly worked for me, even though I I do wish it was shot on film, you know, and not like, you know, I'm going to make this like weird choice with recording the sound or doing the sound mix, but I'm going to shoot it on like the most expensive, like digital camera out there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it is the most expensive, but he's, you know, you know, Fincher's one of those guys that's never going to shoot on film again. And that, doesn't work when your movie is supposed to be black and white embracing old Hollywood. But that said, I think it's mostly has a pretty witty script. And I, I actually really liked a lot of scenes in this, even though it, it also kind of ends on a note that feels a little false to me. Um, just trying to push the, the whole narrative about like Orson Welles, just all, you know, being a complete unadulterated asshole and Mank, you know, being the victim by the end, which isn't really the case. But, I, again, I think it is pretty well made for what it is. It's just not... I've, But Fincher usually does have more bite as a filmmaker. All right. Did I kind of sum it up there? Yes. Is and there anything else you want to say to leave our listeners with about Mank? No, I'm sure I whined about this movie ad nauseum when we recorded our whole episode about it. I really don't like it. <laughs> what? Would you, would you say that we were talking about this uh, a little bit before we start recording in a different context? Would you say that Mank is t- to Fincher what St. Anger is to Metallica? <laughs> oh my god, you know what you could say about Mank? His lifestyle! His lifestyle! Determined his death style! Oh my god. <laughs> We just watched a review the other day of the Metallica album St. Anger, which is kind of known for being a notoriously bad uh, album. Um, I mean, it has its fans, but it it also is another work by a very major talent that has, like, a lot of bad choices. <laughs> and I would say Mank is, I think, better than St. Anger, but I was, just, <laughs> I was just thinking about how much you hated the sound in Mank and thinking about the <laughs> dunk, 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 dunk. All right. All right so so moving on. Movie. Moving on. Moving on. Good. We're keeping this thing going. Next thing is a movie we both saw, Promising Young Woman. We both saw this in the theater. And actually, yes. I was such a Debbie Downer with the last two movies, but Promising Young Woman is actually a movie I like more than you do. You gave this three and a half stars on Letterboxd. I would go higher in my ranking. I give it four. Probably. Yeah, no, I, and I, I, I like this movie. I do. I, I most, and it's largely due to a lot, a lot of this. You, you go into this movie thinking it'll be one thing, 
and it actually ends up being something else. And I think that is both to its credit and partially to its detriment, but it's like to what it's to its credit. I mean, first of all, I think Carrie Mulligan in this lead part is really good. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those who don't know, um, Promising Young Woman, it's uh, about, well, as it's, well, not actually the title character could be, well, it could be referred to this, uh, Carrie Mulligan, it could be referred to her friend. Uh, Carrie Mulligan is this, uh, you know, woman who's kind of working a dead-end job, and is she, like, in, like, a yogurt place or ice cream place? I thought it was, like, a cafe. Yeah, it's she a cafe. was also selling coffee. Yeah, she's working, she's selling coffee, basically, and... But she, you know, once was trying, maybe going to be a doctor, and she's in a college where her friend uh, was, you know, horribly sexually assaulted and then killed herself. And since then, uh, Carrie Mulligan's character, uh, is his name Cassie? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Cassie is, her whole thing is that she goes to, into bars and, you know, you know, kind of acts like she's completely wasted waits for a man to come over, try to help her out, take her to a car, then, you know, maybe bring, go back to the, the apartment, and, you know, usually she'll... It's almost like a spider waiting, setting a trap, where, like, the guy, you know, inevitably the guy will start trying to do a thing to her, and then she'll spring up and go, what are you doing? Yeah. And basically, you know, shame them. And, you know, in a way, this is Carrie Mulligan's shame. <laughs> You know, this time she's like, and eh, that's a weird comparison. Um, anyway, because she's in that movie too. Anyway, she you know has is keeping a book. She's basically is basically ruin you know trying to ruin a man's night as her experiment. But then she find you know she meets Bo Burnham, who was also someone that went to her school, and it brings back a lot of things for her. You know, you wonder if maybe she's going to change things, but I don't want to give away too much of the plot. Because the fun, some of the fun of the movie is really, you know, almost in a, in a slightly almost like mystery movie way, finding out certain details that we didn't know before. And yeah, so basically, not only was her friend's life totally derailed by the rape, but Cassie's life was because yes. she dropped out of medical school. She and her friend. And the men who assaulted her friend were all in the same, like, med school program. And, of course, nothing happened to the men. They, you know, yes. they finished med school. They became successful yes. and accomplished. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the women, unfortunate enough to be in their path, mm -hmm. um, get raped and then kill themselves or get so like emotionally destroyed by the loss of a longtime best friend, they drop out of med school and become a like vigilante light. Yeah, that's the yeah, and that's the thing to know about this movie. It's like she's not going out and like cutting off dicks or you know, or branding or doing anything like that. It's basically like, you know, I'm gonna humiliate you and um, you know, and that's basically that. And like the, the question I had at, at the time seeing the movie and I've maybe softened on this a little bit was wondering like, you know, at a certain point, wouldn't she get like some kind of reputation for doing this, you know, and, and because it doesn't seem like, again, that this is set in, you know, like a big city where 
she could go to a lot of different bars and not be recognized for this. Um, but then I realized though that maybe like you know different groups of guys come into maybe the, this, these bars and you know maybe it's like not just one, maybe it's a couple different ones. Well, yeah, I I don't know why you thought she was going to the same bar every weekend. It, I thought she well, was going it, to different places. It seemed like the same set. I don't like that's because I it didn't really seem that different like from mm. the opening sequence which uh, I think that's Adam Brody yeah. in the opening and then like the next time we see it it's uh um Mintz Platts aka McLovin um and it looked like the same bar either it what either it was or the filmmakers just didn't do enough to make it look that different to me uh-huh. so that again it was. Not something that took me completely out of the movie. It was just something I wondered as far as the logic of her ongoing thing. Because it seems like she's been doing this for, you know, this isn't a recent thing. She's been doing it for months, if not years. Do you know one thing, though, I wish had been explained in the movie? And maybe, um, did Emerald Fennell write this, too? Yes, yeah, she's writer Maybe she felt like it would have been too expository in the script, but... What can I say? I like exposition well, sometimes. But one thing I wish ha- that had been a little clearer is every time she has a rendezvous with one of the men that she kind of baits, she chick like yeah. she checks off a little box. She keeps a running tally in a journal. Yeah. And if you see that the majority of the lines are in black ink, but there's an occasional line in red ink. So she has a tally of, like, 30-something guys. That's an estimate. Yeah. And the majority of the tally marks are in black, but some of them are in red. That can't be random. Yeah. Well, there's that, but then you also wonder, then, like, did every single guy that she meet, like, have the same reaction? It seems like what we're led to believe is every time she did this, the guy's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, no, 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 it's no big deal. And, and like... Like, you could say, well, maybe they were afraid she was going to call the cops. But, like, did no guy, like, try to, like, you know, say, are you fucking kidding? Like, I'm going to fight you. Like, I'm not saying the movie should have gone there necessarily. But, at the same time, you're, you're no, you never get a sense that she's maybe, like, has some type of level of danger that could lead you to believe that she could can do what she'll eventually do in the climax of the movie i see that um i like this movie a lot no i, I and think... i'm not saying i'm sorry to interrupt you but sorry go ahead i like this movie a lot i think it's very well acted it's very well written i think i like the ending but i do think it tries to have its cake and eat it too a little bit yeah that's what I wanted to get to. Again, I think a lot of this movie is, is actually very clever and witty. I really like Carrie Mulligan and Bo Burnham together. I think that they have natural chemistry, and Emerald Fennell gives them really excellent dialogue together. Uh, I really, you know, talking about other actors, I really like um, Connie Britton and Alison Brie show up in a couple of scenes and yeah. are really fantastic. Uh, and and yet, yeah, the the what, what the movie eventually leads to, it ultimately it is good. It is an interesting ending, and again, not one you expect to go to. Actually, a lot more sad than you expect. 
But at the same time, I feel like the movie does have this. It, it has, yeah, as you said, it has the cake and eat it too problem, where it wants to have a bit of the edge of an exploitation thriller, but it's also like being about this issue of campus rape and how you know what what sexual assault and just the effect of that and its aftermath due to the people who know these people and that all that. But you got to show something, man. Yeah, I feel like a lot... Now, I should say, I don't know about you, as much as I like this film, I think the marketing was a little misleading because I think it was marketed as a more straightforward, like, revenge film. And a lot of the movie thematically seems to be actually conveying this message that revenge is a dead end revenge is a path that will not hurt the people you want to get revenge against but will only hurt you and the movie's ending is very i'd say very stark yeah uh, yeah that's a good way to put it it's well, very stark again it does pull the rug out from under you and it does go into a Oh, okay. I didn't know they were going to go there. Okay. Um, but then I think at the very, but then it real, the, I think she must have realized, Emerald Fennel must realize, well, I can't leave the audience completely on this downbeat ending. And she does this little thing at the very end, yeah. you know, the, a kind of story plot contingency thing that is set up kind of halfway in the movie with the Alfred Molina character, um, who also has a great scene. But it also just feels like, well, we got to work in something because otherwise the audience will be completely bummed out. But that, but that's the thing. She, she, she's trying to juggle a lot of tones and it's very admirable because she, I think mostly does it. She, uh, you know, she's having a bit of a rom-com in here. She's having, you know, a very somber, you know, tragic story in here. Mm. Um, but ultimately, you know, and I'm not saying this need to be a Lars von Trier movie, yeah. but you know, because and also this movie, really, you know, really likes women. Thank, thank goodness. But it also, by the the ending, feels like it. She, I don't know. If, would you say she wrote herself into a corner? I would say she wanted to soften the blow. Yeah. For the audience, and I don't know about you. But having, I've seen the movie now like long enough ago that I feel like the if the movie was to have the courage of its convictions, the ending would have been totally downbeat. I yeah. actually think, I don't know what you think, but yeah. I think the 100% downbeat ending was probably the way to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think they should have gone for that. and And it's... It must be, it's gotta be tough because, you know, as a filmmaker, you're trying to appeal to a pretty wide audience and you want to give this message that they, maybe some, some of them just don't get about how, you know, how terrifying it is to be a woman in life today because of the, the kind of crap that Carrie Mulligan's friend happens and even Carrie Mulligan experiences. Um, but yeah, it, but the thing is that you, yeah, she. I wish that this had gone fully into the courage of its convictions. Exactly that. I wish that she had really stuck to that stark ending. And if you're going to leave the audience with that, because ultimately, 
it's hard to talk about the ending without getting into a minor spoiler, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. But it, it, I feel like if you if you're watching this though, and you have had some type of you know violence against you, and you're a woman, I feel like the ending, even though there's that final little bit at the end, what happens is still like a, a kind of gut punch that I wonder if the rest of the movie really earns. Because that's the other question is like, does the, you know, is it really earned? And I'm not 100% sure if it is. Mostly maybe. Like, I remember too, actually, after we watched this movie, the thing that I thought about was, um, and this might actually be a spoiler itself, of Very Bad Things. Yeah. And we went and we watched that movie. And that's a movie that's very dark and isn't afraid to get very violent at times. And really embrace like a dark comic tone which you know this movie kind of has but i don't know so again good movie i recommend it i did like it quite a bit what i i didn't expect that it would be like a movie that got all this oscar attention i would oh i want to say also i like to the way the movie handles women who play who um, also play into, like, patriarchal rape culture bullshit. Because there are multiple female characters in the film that are not exactly, you know, down with the sisterhood, if you know what I mean. So sure. there's a really great supporting performance by Alison Brie. Yeah. And there's... I love the scene between Cassie and Connie Britton, who yeah. is some kind of dean at the college yes. that they attended. Yeah. And... I thought that was really good because these like patriarchal systems are not exclusively, you know, built and maintained by men. Mm -hmm. There are lots of women yeah. that, um, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad that, you know, she shows that like, you know, the, it's not, you know, men have the power structure in place, but a lot of women buy into it. It's kind of like, you know, all the women that voted for Trump, <laughs> You know, white women, you cut, you're partially responsible for this shit. <laughs> like, you know, I, don't, I don't know if that was part of Emerald Fennell's message, but, but yeah, that is a key part of it. I'm glad you mentioned that, that like, you know, try, you know, it's one thing to try to go after individual men going after a system is, you know, a much bigger fish to fry. Yeah. And I also like that this movie, I think really does address the fact that some of the people who did huh, very bad things in this movie mm -hmm. are not bad people in mm -hmm. other aspects of their no. lives. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. they're morally complex in the sense that I fully believe s some of the characters in this movie who behaved in pretty reprehensible ways vis-a-vis -vis sexual assault are morally upstanding in other parts of their lives. Yeah. So I do think the movie did a good job of demonstrating um, this idea that you could really delude yourself into thinking that you're a good person. Yeah. Even if you are involved in some way with something as heinous as sexual assault. So I thought the movie handled that very well. I thought the movie handled how people justify their own conduct to themselves. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, that also that made me think of you know Alison Breeze, kind of like that too, to a point. And Bo Burnham's character, without yeah. saying too much, very much is that as well. Um, even to an extent, Cassie. Yeah. And, and but uh, that's why I feel like the ending. I feel like it's good, but I feel weird about it because I wonder if the rest of the movie, what they did with Ca- what what Cassie's character is all about, uh. if. Where her what like her arc was going was really in that direction, yeah. You know, and I know we we talked about this before off mic, but um, but yeah. So that's basically like where I was at with the movie. And again, I still like it quite a bit. I just didn't quite go into that full four star range like you did. Yeah. So I think you nailed it when you said this movie is very ambitious and it's juggling a lot of different tones and a lot of different ideas Mm -hmm. and it juggles them well most of the time but it slips a little bit yeah at times so you would give it three and a half stars out of five i would give it four stars out of five yeah yeah or like in leather grade form it's it's a b plus a solid (laughs) b plus and with that, I want to move on to the next movie, though. Because, again, we got to keep these going. Okay. And we're, now we're going to get into some of the really good ones. Uh, and this is one I, I just recently saw, The Father. Right. Which, um, you know, really uh, surprisingly well-done movie that, uh, for those who don't know, this is based on a play, uh, I think, by a guy. I think he's a French writer. Uh, his or it sounds like or he's at least somewhat somewhat European. When I say his name, you'll be like, of course, his name's like Florian Zeller, I believe is his name, and he adapted his own play and directed it. It's his first, uh, actually, his first feature film, which is kind of awesome. There are a lot of like there are actually a few first time directors. Emerald Fennel is another one. Oh, I forgot to mention, she is an actress who was on Call the Midwife. And oh yeah, yeah. You, you told don't me watch about Call that. the Midwife, but I'm a big Call the Midwife fan. Yeah, have your crumpety moment here. <laughs> and I was just thrilled to see a Call the Midwife alum having this career advancement. She was great in Call the Midwife. She played a very compelling character and delivered an excellent performance. So mm. I love her in Call the Midwife, and I'm very <laughs> glad that she's taking this next step <laughs> in her career. <laughs> delivered a performance <laughs> on Call the Midwife. All right. Well. I had to. It was right there. I had to, you might say, push it out. Okay. All right. The that, serious things now. Okay. So the father, we have Anthony Hopkins. Um, he is uh, basically dealing with uh, Alzheimer's uh, or, or dementia. It's uh, really, it really might be dementia. They never explicitly say like what the diagnosis is but it's basically you know i'm losing my mind but i'm trying to stay in control of my faculties the movie um pretty much mo- most if not all the movie i actually know i'd say about 90 to 95 percent takes place in the flat that as anthony hopkins character says as he says more than once i will not be leaving my flat <laughs> And, you know, it's a very heartbreaking story because you're following this guy who um, his daughter is uh, Olivia Coleman, or is she? Um, <laughs> and what what's really fascinating about this movie is that the director, the filmmaker, makes 
Anthony Hopkins struggle almost to a certain extent, kind of like a thing out of like Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse Five. He's kind of like almost slipping out of time in and out of his mind of where he might be or like, and not necessarily throughout his entire life. He's, you know, he's, he's an old man throughout it, but you know, he's not, he'll suddenly be in a scene and he'll leave the room and come back and he'll repeat, they'll repeat the scene basically Okay. because he's like, as if he forgot what's happened and he'll be like, wait, this just happened. Wait, didn't we just do this? So is some of the movie told from his perspective as an unreliable narrator? It's m- pretty much all from his perspective. Like there might be a couple of parts where it's clear, okay, we're seeing this that it's supposed to be Olivia Coleman. Um, but it, it, no, it, he's the unreliable narrator and that's what makes it really fascinating is that he is, um, you know, it's suddenly he'll be, you know, you'll think that Olivia Coleman's his daughter, but then he'll, come into a scene and Olivia Williams, uh, different actresses there. And he, you know, she says she's a daughter, but then it's like, wait, what? Wait, is she the daughter now? Wait, what's happening here? Oh no, wait, no, it's Olivia Coleman again. And wait, didn't she like, and like Olivia Coleman tells him early on in the movie, I'm moving to Paris. You know, you're not going to be seeing me anymore. Like, Cause he lives in England, obviously. But then like a couple scenes later, she's like, I never said that I'm staying around here. Okay, so the movie tries to replicate the sense of confusion or displacement that the protagonist himself is feeling. It's, yeah, and in his mind, it almost, he, it's, he thinks he's being gaslit. Because <laughs> he's like, he thought he was being told this thing, but now it's this thing. You know, I thought we were going to have the chicken tonight, but now it's not the chicken. It's, you know, uh, <laughs> what, about, what who is this guy? You know, what, what are you doing here? You know, it's like, no, this is our flat. You're staying here. You know, like, no, this is my house. This is my house. And <clears throat> what Anthony Hopkins brings to it, it's just so much, like, dignity. He is just playing him, like, totally straight, but it's like your your heart is kind of, again, breaking it. And you said in your letterbox review there are a lot of close-ups in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's the other interesting part of it. I would say absolutely. Like, is is that um, he? You know, it, it's um, it, I, I, yeah. There are a lot of interesting close-ups. It's a lot of um, trying to get you as close into his perspective as possible. You, you're trying. He's the director is really trying to make the point of view paramount so that we understand we can actually get a sense of what it's like to have this malady that your actually, your mind is basically going little by little. Um, there's going to be actually another movie I'm going to talk about that I think also does this very well in a couple movies from now, but um, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's very, it breaks your heart though, because you can tell like he wants to try to still be with it, but it's like scene at, but like as the scenes go on, you know, like no, he he's starting to lose it a little bit more. And like at one point, Olivia Coleman tra- brings in like another, uh, like kind of like a caregiver, uh, to stay with with him. But then it then it, it becomes a little bit muddled that like maybe this is he's implanting a 
his other daughter who had previously died. Okay. And that also adds to the confusion. And, uh, you know, because at first she seems like a very sympathetic person to what he's saying. And, uh, but then, of course, you know, when you have dementia as well, you have mood swings. So you might be really, you know, at one point he's trying to, sh- you know, he's like, I'm, I used to be a tap dancer. You know, even though he wasn't. And he's like tap dancing for this chick. But then he gets really moody and gloomy and sad. Now, in the film, is it kind of a steady linear decline or does he wax and wane? Uh, mostly like it's a steady decline. Sometimes he does kind of wax and wane a little bit more. Um, so I think that is what makes it also very sad is that you could tell like he, there are little sparks where you could think like, oh no, no, he still knows that something is going on, but he can't just be sat down and be told like, look, you're going through this, you know, it's going to be rough. It's just, you know, did you, you need to take your medication now you need to do this. And it, you could tell that it's a play, that it was a play, but the construction of it is what makes it very different. The fact that again, you're in his point of view, you're following how, you know, how, how am I, how to understand what it is to be deteriorating because you're when I described this on Letterboxd, I said that this was a better Christopher Nolan movie than we got the past year. <laughs> you're actually getting a very emotional story about somebody who's like slipping in and out of time. And <laughs> you know, it's you're not dealing with like a uh, you know the protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> it, well. it's actually much more like and also in the very last scene just like oh oh man oh well no like when you finally figure out like where he really is at and maybe where he's been for a lot of the story like that's the thing like i could go back to this movie and kind of it's like that kind of puzzle thing where i could go back and watch this again and realize oh wait oh no no he was actually in this moment at this time no, and maybe um, there's obviously this actor Mark Gaddis who was on uh, Sherlock. Uh, he's in it, and you know, was he was he actually with Olivia Coleman, or was he this other character, and all this stuff? Well, I think narratives about dementia strike at this kind of core existential question: Who are you if you don't have your mind? Yeah, yeah. It's and the whole thing keeping on the movie is like. Who are you, people? <laughs> you know, it's, that, that kind of thing. And again, he's Andy Hopkins. I think he's up for best actor too. And he is just—you could tell. The thing is, he's playing it also physically. Like you could tell, he's watched people that have had, or observed people that have had, you know, dementia or Alzheimer's or th- you know disorders like you know things that are melting your brain basically as an old person. And yet his eyes like say a lot too like his eyes are very much like telling a story as well and that's also keeping some type of you know again that's what's trying to keep us in line with him and uh yeah again i would recommend it to to many people again it's not if you've known someone in your family that's gone through this it might be a harder sit but it, it's very it's a very powerful drama like i i would say that it's you, you could again it is you could tell that it is a play so in that sense 
I don't know if it transcends being a play entirely, but at the same time, again, I mentioned the close-ups, and it's clear that he's trying very much to make this more of a cinematic experience than what you might experience seeing it on a stage with actors, you know, moving in and out and trying to, you know, confound the audience in that way. Is it anything like the Michael Haneke movie, Amour? Um, well, hmm. Well, it's different in that I think in in Amour, that was a little bit more of well, Amour was more, Amour, Amour was, I think that the the male you know you had the the husband and wife, I think that was more from the husband's point of view. Okay, you know he and he was taking care of you know when his you know as his wife was losing you know her her mind. Um, so I, it's not the same in that sense. And also, it's not as, uh, ultimately, it's not as cruel as Michael Haneke goes for towards the end of that movie. No one's as cruel as Michael <laughs> Well, most of that movie is actually quite good, but then he goes, you know, for that gut punch that he's known for, and it's just like, oh, oh, man. I, I, oh, you had to go there. Um, and this movie doesn't do that. It's more of a consistent... D- display, but again, the, the innovation to me was just how it um, me- messes in a non-linear way, while still making it clear that he's on this descent. Oh, I have another question: Is it anything like that movie, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Hmm, not in that like not in that same style that he that ha- he quite had. Uh, I think that Julian Schnabel made uh the intimacy in that movie much more like in your face of course um the protagonist in that film had the opposite problem his mind was fine it was just his body that had betrayed him wasn't that like and this is a digression i know but wasn't that the movie where like kind of like my left foot only he like he dictated an entire book by blinking his eyes yes so the (laughs) real guy yeah can you imagine that? He wrote an entire book just through blinking because mm-hmm. he had locked in syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I other thing I remember from that movie is that at one point they used the Tom Waits song, All the World is Green. Um yeah, but anyway, so the father, go check it out. If you really like, you know, just solid, you know, dramas that um you know can really suck you in and make you feel lots of feelings. <laughs> it's a very feelingsy movie. Uh, and of course, Olivia Coleman, you know, world treasure, Olivia Coleman. Um, the whole cast is really good. Uh, oh, you know who pops up in that too? Uh, Rufus Sewell. Good for him. You hadn't seen him in a while, right? Good for him. Yeah. As the people can probably tell, I have not seen this movie. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so we're in the top half of your list now, right? Number yes. Four. We're moving on to a lot of the good shit. Um, now I want to bring up uh, Minari. Which you just saw today. So we're getting piping fresh Minari content. We're getting some Minari hot takes. Okay. Um, yeah, this is one where I'm going to need to remember some names if you want to pull this up. Okay. Um, so, uh, if you may have heard Minari, it's because it's actually a... Well, it's almost funny because the Golden Globes in their infamous, uh, you know, dumb fuckery they um i believe that minari won best foreign language film 
Do you remember that? Yes, and there was controversy about that because it's an American production. Not only is it an American production, but I could tell you guys, like, at least, like, 25 to 30% of the movies in English. It's like, yeah, it's a Korean family, but, like, they're, the thing is, it's about Korean family. They moved to Arkansas in, in the 1980s um, because the dad want, has this whole uh, idea in mind that he's going to become a farmer. Uh, you know, he's going to you know, buy, a, you know, buy some land for, I guess, an affordable price and make, uh, you know, make a, his crop. Uh, you know, he's been trying to work. Him and his wife were basically, they, they moved to America from Korea, basically having a pretty dead-end job, like, inspecting, uh, as they say in the movie, chick, like, chicken sexes. Mm-hmm. Like, they basically, ch- their whole job, and I guess this is a job that maybe people, like, I don't know if this is a job that immigrants have, or I assume they do, because they show it in the movie, um, where your whole job is to just check to see if like a little chick, like a little baby yeah. chick, has like male or female sex organs, okay, and if they're a male, they basically get discarded because they're, you know, you can't really eat them and they they don't make eggs, um, and or you put them in the other pile as if they're female, and that's basically been their job in California, um, but the dad has this idea of no, I'm you know what I'm I'm gonna try this thing out, I'm gonna make a farm. Because then, you know, I can grow things and I can sell them myself. And, you know, it's basically you're just... He even says this word in the movie. He says, you're growing money. <laughs> he has this, But the problem is, you know, like, as soon as they get to their... To what the house they bought. It's not even a house. It's kind of like a trailer. And the wife is, like, her heart sinks, and like, immediately. You could see, like, her face go, like, what the hell? And... That's like the like a main conflict in the movie is that he's you know, and we've probably heard seen this kind of movie before where you know the dad is super headstrong and has this whole dream in mind. Um, mm-hmm. I actually, in a different way, saw a movie like this way back with uh, Harrison Ford called The Mosquito Coast. Does that name ring a bell? Sounds vaguely familiar, but yeah. I've never seen it. Yeah, it's actually written by Paul Schrader, and I think directed by, uh, oh, oh, the guy did Witness and Truman Show. I'm blanking on his name now. Uh, oh, Peter oh, Weir? film. Thank you. Oh, my God. How did I blank on Peter Weir's name? Film, film Twitter's name. You're gonna just kill me. lucky. I, w- I was a diehard Truman Show fan back in the I day. love the Truman Show, too. That's love why I'm disappointed in myself. No, but anyway, that had a slightly similar premise to this, where it's like, you know, you know, I almost hear the the classic Walter White grunting in my head. I'm doing this for my family. You know, <laughs> it's like that, but much more mild mannered and you know, crane immigranty. But the thing about this movie is that you think going in, oh, it's going to be all about Stephen Yoon is playing this guy Jacob. He's the dad who you know is trying to make this farm thing uh, going. Um, you think it's going to be his movie, but really, it's about the whole family. And, you know, it's a father, mother, and their two kids. And grandma. And grandma. Like, yeah, the, the wife's, uh, you know, mother comes to live with them. Um, she's also, obviously, an immigrant. And it's like you come thinking it's going to be a Steven Yeun movie, but it's really the grandma's movie in and a lot of ways. did grandma get an Oscar nomination? Yeah. And, like, she is so good in the movie. It's basically, you're, you watch 
you know, it's an ensemble, really. Like, it's and it's funny because we're going to talk about another movie very shortly, uh, and I'm not going to say which one it is yet. But we talked about how like how the Oscars pick who is and who isn't a lead actor or a supporting actor, and because yeah. you know Stephen Yoon, you could say like, yeah, he is like a leading man in this movie, but he's actually gone for a lot of parts of it. It's a lot of the time, you know, the show. Between uh, and the actress, uh, the 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 grandmother's name Sunjin. She's played by uh, Yoon. I hope I'm not mispronouncing this. I apologize for anyone listening. Yoon Yoo Jung, I think is how is her her name is said. And she yeah, she's nominated for best supporting actress, which is really cool. Um, you know, pretty much almost all of her performances in Korean. Stephen Yoon has again some in English, some in Korean, and her and this and the son. Are just so adorable, and watching it, you're you know, because there's like a whole thing where you know he's ne- the little boy, you know, he's never met the grandma and at first. He's like hiding behind the mom when she first comes in, and he has a whole thing for a little while. It's like you're not you're not my grandma, and she's like, why not? And you know, because his whole the the little boy's thing is you don't do grandma things, you don't bake cookies, you don't <laughs> do like this and that, and. uh and like the, it just how their relationship unfolds, I feel like is really the heart of this movie, and is extremely charming. And there's going to be quite a comparison for some of the cinephiles out there. It's almost an element in this, not in the direction, but in the script that reminded me a little bit of Ozu, uh, how he de- how he often would write families. Um, Obviously, in this case, there's a bit more drama, uh, but it, it's very heartfelt in that way. But also what's really wonderful about the film is how the director uh, balances a lot of the bittersweet tone mm. of things. You know, because these are immigrants and you'd think that immigrant, you know, Korean immigrants coming to Arkansas, that would immediately be like, you know, racial slurs. But that's not really the case. And in fact, there's a really great scene where. The, the family decides, like, okay, we're going to go to the church in town in large part because Jacob knows his wife and... Oh, what's the wife's name now? Can you... Are you... That on character's name is Monica. Thank you, Monica, yeah. That Monica, she's there in Arkansas. She doesn't know anybody. She doesn't have any friends. So it's thought, we'll go to church. Maybe you'll make some friends. And it's like, at first, you know, people in the church, they kind of look like, oh... Koreans here, okay. But they don't really say anything. They're just like, welcome, you know, you look like a nice family. And then, like, there's a kind of, you know, reception, which I guess, you know, Christians have after these, like, services. (laughs) I wouldn't know as, you know, I'm not not goy. But, uh, anyway, and, like, you know, like, the kids are kind of talking like other, you know, like, the white kids are talking with these little Korean kids. And, like, this little white boy just says to... Dan- I think his name's uh, Danny is the son. I could be wrong, right? Well, is it Alan Kim is the actor? Alan Kim? David. David. I, I was close. D- David, sorry. Yeah, he, t- he says to David, like, why is your face so, like, like slanted? Or, like... So- he-, he says some type of thing about, like, you know, how you know Asians have, like, a certain face. And the boy is just like, I don't have that. I don't have that base. And the little boy's like, okay. And that's basically it. Like, <laughs> that ends the conversation. Then they become friends. 
it's like and I found that really like almost charming. It's like, hey, you know, if you just talk to someone and get to know them, then you're not gonna be like necessarily a racist douchebag. Um, so that I something I really liked is how the movie dealt with race and ethnicity, but it didn't like push it into something that seemed cartoonish. Like, you know, this isn't like the green book style. This is something that's more like, here's how it realistically would be. It's not an after school special. No, 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 not really. Um, and like, it's, it really centers on just how this family is trying to get by. And of course, you know, what you imagine will happen that the, the dad is trying to plant these crops. He, kind of puts himself into a bad position though because he like decides all right i want to actually sell my uh, crops to koreans so i'm gonna have like kind of korean grown vegetables okay. like i'm not gonna have like american vegetables because i don't want to compete with Amer- other american farms i want to sell directly to the koreans but then like he discovers no sometimes the korean markets they get from other states and so it becomes a bit of like a, a like oh no like he took out all this money from the bank what's he gonna do and uh. so and and you just feel this tension that's coming between the the husband and the wife here and yet that itself is dealt with very well too um, and so it's just a very intimately felt um, and just very sweet hearted movie. Um, it, what it, the ending of the movie? I don't know if it completely works, just because it feels like the writer kind of threw in a slight contrivance that a character does to make an event happen, and I don't want to spoil it again because you know you might you you should definitely check out this movie at some point. I really want to see this. Oh my god, you you will, the boy is so cute. Like if you look up pictures of I like literally this little boy, just looked at a picture of him and he was adorable. Yeah, and like the things he does. Oh my god, uh, made me feel squish. And uh, it's funny considering, like, oh god, there's a little subplot involving like him wetting the bed. <laughs> I do want to see this movie and, a lot. <laughs> and I just got. I'm, I'm sorry, I gotta say this joke. It's just so adorable because you know, like because the, the grandma finds out that he still wets the bed and he. He's like, what's wrong with his thing? How do you say like the girl's like, how do you say it in English? Penis. You have a broken penis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like, you know, it's like it made me also think about like times I've had with my grandma, you know, my baba and how like sweet she was. Oh, did the grandma in this movie have baba energy? Um, well, not directly like her, but Maybe, like, and when thinking about when I was a real little kid and how I would interact with her. Maybe kind of like that. You know? When it was not, like, complicated by, like, the rest of life. Yeah. You know? Just when you're very young and innocent and, uh, you know. And, like, the movie also, again, it, it really it has a lot of intimate little details that are just nice. and But it also, it, so it's like there are other conflicts that... It's not just that there's the farm. It's also like the boy has like a little heart condition. And so it's like if you, you know, you're, you're at this farm and it's like an hour drive from the hospital, you know, you're, you're also adding that onto it. You know, what if the boy suddenly has to just run, you know, that's going to be a little conflict. So again, it's, 
that's the kind of thing that I, that I mean when I it reminded me a little bit of uh, the films of Yasujiro Ozu, who's this you know, his Japanese director who dealt with very small, intimate family drama things, and yet you may it feel very lived in. Again, it's not the same style directing wise as those movies. Um, oh, I didn't talk about the uh, also, you know, the actor Will Patton. Yes, he's in the movie. And God, oh, he he should get like just a special Oscar on his own. He's like this weird, super Christian eccentric who is like super nice and yet sometimes will like he kind of helps the Jacob character, Stephen Yoon, with his farm. And sometimes he'll be like oh off in the field and start talking in tongues. Cause he's just that into Jesus, and like every Sunday he'll walk around actually with a cross that he's dragging through the streets. <laughs> he's amazing. Oh, I love him so much in this movie. I wish again, I, this has actually been on a lot of people's like, not just best of the year, but like number one. And so I had a lot of hype going into this again. I think the very end, like I'd say not even like, you know, the climax, I'd say like the last like five to 10 minutes, it, I'm not going to say it's contrived, but it feels a little convenient to make the movie come to a certain point. Is um, it out of step tonally with the rest of the film? Not entirely. Um, but it's just like, it felt like the story goes to a certain point to try to resolve something. Mm-hmm. And it, it just felt, I'll, I'll say, all I'll say is that it involves grandma uh, and it involves the farm. And that's all I'll say it involves. Yeah, I can um, kind of maybe out what maybe when we're off mic, I'll explain what happens in it. But it, it that's the only part that I felt like. Well, no, I this still feels totally consistent. I just don't think it works. Mm-hmm. But again, that's a minor complaint from what is otherwise a really wonderful movie. Um, and of course, Stephen Yoon, who's the first, if you can believe it, the first Asian American lead nominated for Best Actor, which is just insanity. Like, insanity. Like, you couldn't have nominated Jackie Chan for something? Oh, wait, he's Chinese. No, I... <laughs> I should edit that out. It's too late. It's on record forever. Bang! Take me out in the field and kill me. It is very unfortunate it's taken this long. Yeah. Like, I, it, it's just... You wonder what was going on. <coughs> wait. <coughs> anyway, um... But yeah, and it's the thing is this movie also it it's especially I feel like this should be playing on thousands of screens. Like this is you could you can get it I think on demand. It is pricey though. It might run you about $15-20 dollars yeah, to rent it. I checked just um, today. It's 19.99 to get it on, on demand. I will say though, I would actually would say it's worth it though. Like if you really are interested in especially at this time where you know asians asian americans it's really horrible right now in this country what's going on with how you know the racial violence and you know murders and just madness are going on and this is a movie that's showing no this is they are the part of the american experience you know they are trying they're people who just 
want to try and make it and have a farm and grow their crops and, you know, maybe get by. And, you know, it's, it's the, the, the deeper implication as well is, you know, they, if it doesn't work with this farm, they'll, they'll have to go back to a whole other state because, you know, what else do the options do they have, which is probably another sign about what level they can really get to, which is why, his whole plan with this is so paramount in the story. So like the, so the, the stakes are really strong and yet again, it's just a very simple movie about this family. And you know, if you like also one last thing, if you really like Asian food, there's a lot, there's probably a lot of good Asian food in this movie. Love like, have you read kimchi? Um, not, not really. Um, I was once, like, at a restaurant where, like, kimchi was served, but I didn't eat any of it. Yeah, there's a lot of kimchi in this movie. It made me want to try it. It sounded like it might be delicious. I've been watching some Korean dramas on Netflix, and they do a lot of, like, really sumptuous food scenes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and that's the other thing, too. In your case, if you've if you already been, you know, consuming all these you know, Korean shows, I think this is something that, um, it, I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not going to say it's like neorealist, but it feels a lot more grounded in the real world than a lot of movies I've seen just in the past few years. Alright. So, Minari, go check it out. I look and, forward to seeing it. Alright, next up, Sound of Metal. <laughs> what a badass name. And actually, right now, I'm doing the thing that, uh, the, the main character Nat was doing at the start. I'm like trying to pop my ears. Um, I just, you know, sometimes your ears just get full. I saw the last 40 minutes of this movie and they were real good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you saw those minutes. Like you didn't see any, any other part of the movie. No, what happened was this wasn't like the trial of the Chicago seven where I started watching it, didn't like it bounced and then crawled back you were watching it on one night, and this was the other movie that you did not see in the theater, that you watched on Amazon Prime. Yes. And I probably didn't watch it with you because I would, I'm a trash panda who probably wanted to watch something <laughs> totally brainless. Yeah. And what happened was I literally came into the room when you were watching it just to, like, get something. Mm -hmm. And I was so immediately transfixed that I just sat mm -hmm. down and watched the rest of the movie. Yeah. Well, and for those who maybe don't know, uh, Sound of Metal, which yeah, you can watch on Amazon Prime right now, is uh, Riz Ahmed is a uh, is like a drummer in, I guess what you could terribly call an experimental, like screamo metal band. Like if you're again, I'm not. I don't even like this music either. But it's you know, it's a choice. It's it's very much a distinctive you know musical idea that they're showing here in this movie and uh it's it's him it's Riz Ahmed and what was the actress's name Olivia uh, Cook Thank you yeah Olivia Cook yeah she's in it um and they're they're kind of almost like a two person metal band and what you what happens basically in the first 20 to 25 minutes he's you know Riz Ahmed's character is losing his hearing and it's shown in, in presented in a extremely compelling and you know just 
in a way that kind of like how I mentioned before with the father is a way of bringing you into the first person perspective. Um, I almost hearken it back as well to how Scorsese, you know, will use, you know, the tools at his disposal with, you know, point of view with the camera, as well as what a character is hearing to get you inside their, their mindset. Um, and that's what you see here, especially with how sound is incorporated and how we're hearing everything that he's hearing or precisely not hearing as, you know, these performances take their toll and he gets that like loud, not loud, but that like kind of sound that you get when your ears are ringing. Tinnitus, only, yeah. yeah, tinnitus, only it's, you know, to the point where he finally is clearly going about to lose all of his hearing. Um and it gets to a point where he realizes, I, I guess I can't do what I've been doing before. And um, his uh, and his girlfriend finds that there's this uh, community uh, that he can go to, which is run by uh, Paul Racy, the, the actor, and he plays a character. It runs basically a, a little home for, for, deaf, for, for deaf people. And so he very reluctantly joins this community and leaves behind uh, Olivia Cook, who goes off to actually Paris, and he just tries to figure out like, what am I going to do with myself? Like, am I going to, you know, try to make it with with her? Am I going to try to make it with this community? And it's just the kind of character piece that I really love because it is very it's very unsentimental in its approach. But it's full of just this over this this heart that's like overflowing, if that makes sense. And it's a really good uh, display of how you can present this type of issue and not make it into again a big issue movie. Looking at you, Aaron Sorkin, and <laughs> you know you can have a story like this and make it about what this character is feeling. You know, there's the old Roger Ebert axiom. You know, it's not what a movie's about, it's how it's about it, which is, you know, the thing I'll carry with me in the grave. And when you see what Riz Ahmed is going through, you know, like the, the way that the close-ups on him very much are looking at, his, you know, he's oftentimes just in a total panic and he's trying to keep his face straight, but you see his eyes darting around and just completely like, holy shit, holy shit, what is going on? And then finally he does have some freakouts and they're very intense. And, you know, it's also interesting to see, you know, a deeply felt drama that, by the way, also comes from, uh, the director is also a first timer. Once again, uh, his name's Darius Martyr. Mar Mar Martyr? Marauder? I might be mispronouncing it. <laughs> He's a, the, the Marauder Sound of Metal. God, that's, that's quite a name. Am I pronouncing that wrong? It's Spelled like martyr, like murder, but with an A. Okay, instead. martyr. Yeah. Well, he also worked with um, this filmmaker, Derek Chien France, who I've seen actually a lot of his movies. And it has a bit of that feel at times. Uh, you know, because he did Blue Valentine. He did Place Beyond the Pines. He's one of the, I think he co-wrote the movie and or produced it. Yes. And it did. has a little bit of that feel to it as well. Um, and... Well, you know, it's also realistic is, again, this guy is like a metalhead. He's a guy who has, you know, he's tattoos. He has like the hair, you know, he's just, you know, one of those kind of guys. But 
they also don't make him into a cliche either. He's just, but that adds to the character of the movie. It's like sometimes a movie itself has a certain character to it. Um, and at first he's that character, but then as he gets involved with this deaf community, the, the tone kind of changes and he realizes, huh, so I can actually be a part of something that isn't just about, you know, me and my lady going around like performing, you know, screamo metal or whatever it is. And it's, you know, I don't, again, it's hard to exactly give a movie like this away, but it's really about his emotional journey. And those kind of movies, they can be very tricky to pull off because how do you do that without falling into cliches or conventions? And this handles it extraordinarily well, you know, especially because Riz Ahmed is so in tune with this guy. What I found very impressive about the part of the movie I saw was that the movie had high stakes and interpersonal conflict, but every person was well-intentioned and well-meaning. Yeah. So I was really impressed by, even in a movie where the protagonist is wrestling with a serious problem and he's wrestling with this conundrum about, um, again, do I settle in this deaf community? Because the thing is, staying in the deaf community means he can't have a cochlear implant. Yes, yes, I, I should have mentioned that So that's too. like yes. the great choice before him, because yeah. the deaf community is founded on this idea that being deaf is not a handicap. So getting a cochlear implant means that you are exiled from the community. Now, yeah. granted... The guy who runs the community communicates this in a nice way. He's not like an asshole about it. No, yeah. Well, how he communicates to him is, you know, that's, you know, we look at this isn't a way that you can kind of cheat around this. Like, this is who we are. You know, if you do that, then you can't, you, know, you just can't really be here. We don't look, you know, we're not going to say you're bad, but, you know, we can't have you here we're trying to do that. And, that extent, see, the funny thing is, I knew that that is a part of the, you know, the conflict and the stakes of the movie. Is he going to find some medical workaround so that he can kind of hear again, even though it's not going to be the same thing? And yet, but the thing is, the central question really is not even about that. That's why I think this movie's so, it, it hit me so hard. It's really about, who are you going to be as a person? Yeah. Like how, how can you, and also how do you live with yourself having this? And I find that that's such a, you know, you don't see that too often. You don't see that nominated for best picture too often where it's an existential quandary. We've got two existential quandary movies. Cause the father is kind of, well, you know, we can even go into a third one, which will be, well, oh, you're right. Even later on, yeah, we have one more that's kind of an existential quandary movie. Yeah, God, like I have to think that. May I wonder if the uh, you know you? I think we read about how the Academy opened up like its doors to you know a lot of younger people, more diverse, uh -huh. po you know, populace of uh, creative people. I wonder if that's going to lead to better movies getting nominated for Best Picture in the future. You know, I mean, you'll still get like your Trials of Chicago 7s, <laughs> but you'll get more movies like Sound of Metal. 
which, yay. Yeah, and this, this is gonna sound mean. I don't mean it to be mean, because I said I really like the part of this movie I saw. But really, Sound of Metal is, like, the serious, well-made version of that Neil Breen movie where he's like, Who am I? <laughs> what am I? We didn't even watch that one, did we? No, I only saw the trailer. What, you mean Twisted Pear? Because yeah. remember, he does that thing. He's like, Who am I? <laughs> What am I? You mean when he says that wearing the most <laughs> fake looking beard in existence? Yes, but... Fake beards on <laughs> Saturday Night Live looked realer <laughs> than that one. Wow, I didn't think we'd have a Twisted Pear reference in but this. But Sound of Metal is like the actually yeah. good art version mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, and um, and it's... Uh, and also, the authenticity is just really spot on too like you could tell the filmmakers really spent their time like with like a lot of you know people in the deaf community and made sure that that you know all of that was copacetic and so you can have you know you have that foundation here as well and i liked in, a, in an interview I, I didn't watch the full interview but there was some quote i saw where riz ahmed says like you know the deaf community it's actually it's a culture it's not just like a you know, you're you're having a dis disability. People in the in this deaf community they see themselves as a culture, and I like that the idea that you can have this culture that's you know that you're not weren't exposed to before, and where it finally leads to the very end of the movie is just like ah. Oh. Like, the that's last, an ending. The last scene of this movie, it's the anti-trial of the Chicago 7. The last scene of this movie is just perfection. Yes. Yeah, per perfect ending. Yeah, definitely one of the be best movies I've seen this year. Yeah, the next two movies are going to be just, you know, great sauce and us gushing. And, um, so I'm now excited because I've seen your top two. I mean... Through a process of elimination, I know what they are, and I've seen both these movies. And I'm glad that you waited. That we, I'm glad we waited to do this episode till you saw these next two. Because I feel like if you hadn't seen these next two, it would have been a much tougher podcast to try to do. I'm very excited to see which is your number one and which is your number two. All right. Well, you didn't look at my list. I hope no. <laughs> you didn't peek. Okay. Good. Well, next up on my list is Juice and the Black Messiah. I just, you saw this movie in the theater months ago and then saw well, it again. One month ago. Oh, I've lost all yeah. track of time. Yeah, I somehow, this is the first movie since Parasite that I've seen more than once in the movie theater. And I saw this movie recently, so it's fresh in my mind. Yeah, and um, again, this is where I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about uh, movies based on history uh, in a particular you know, heated, explosive uh, time in, in America. When is it not explosive? But this especially in this... Oh, literally explosive time. Uh -huh. Based on events, in, certain events in the film. Okay. Well, without, well, let me first explain, though, what we're talking about here, though. With Judas and the Black Messiah, this is the story of uh, one of the leaders of uh, the Black Panthers, in particular in Chicago, the chairman of the Black Panthers in 1969 was... Uh, Fred Hampton uh, was just 21 years old, and you know he was uh, you know among many people who were leading the Black Panthers then, trying to you know have this radical idea of hey, what if we get you know 
kids to eat like breakfast and have meals and yeah. have like resources and things like medical centers and things that white society are not providing us. And yeah, we do maybe want to arm ourselves and protect ourselves because, you know, if you're going to have the second amendment and all these gun rights, we should be able to have guns too. And the FBI did not like this at all. And so they, you know, proceeded to do what the FBI did back then. Uh, by the way, if you, if anybody wants to check out a documentary called MLK FBI, that's like a good adjacent movie to this one. But what you really get in this story is the story of William O'Neill, who was basically like a petty criminal who, uh, through a very bad moment of luck, uh, ended up a uh, informant for the FBI, you know, placed right into Fred Hampton's circle. And you're just seeing basically, uh, you know, the, you know, a story about how, uh, White supremacy fucks everything. <laughs> yeah. So, I loved this movie. I thought yeah. it was really great. Obviously, the two lead performances, who were both nominated for supporting actor, we alluded to that earlier. Um, yeah. So Lakeith Stanfield, he, he's William O'Neill. He, he's the uh, he, he's the he's the man who uh, again was. You know, ironically, posing as an FBI agent to steal, you know, try to steal people's cars, and he, you know, he he infiltrates the organization, and Daniel or Kaluuya is uh, Fred Hampton. They are both nominated for best supporting actor, even though, you know, at, you could argue that they're co-leads of the movie, or at the least. Daniel Kaluuya is the lead, and Lakeith Stanfield is a very prominent supporting actor. Yeah. But, you know, again, what can you do? This is the way the Oscars work. I mean, you know, Viola Davis and Fences, enough said. Yeah, these things can be very political, and sometimes studios steer actors into certain categories yeah. that they think will be easier to crack. Do you think it would be any better? Do you remember, like, there was also a time, like, back in the 70s where, like, Actors would get nominated and even win for being in a movie for, like, five minutes. Well, I think the most recent time that happened was Judy Dench for Shakespeare in Love. Yes. Which I think was in the movie for seven or eight minutes. Yeah, and won an Oscar, which, you know, you know, we talk about Gwyneth Paltrow winning for Best Actress being, like, you know, a move from Harvey Weinstein all over it. But, yeah, for Best Actress, Best, best Supporting Actress in that, goddamn. I'm anyway. just gonna pretend she won for notes on a scandal. Yes. Oh, well, they well that even though that came later, sure. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, movie. Um, we well, this is just what is so great about this, and we you talked about it after you saw this, and I think you had an excellent point, which is that the this movie, Shaka King, he's the director and he's a co-writer. He does away with a lot of stuff that you usually would get in a movie like this and he's wise enough to know you don't need it and yeah. just get into what is going on in this story you know just you know Jesse Plemons is the FBI agent that's uh you know put Lucky Stanfield in this position all he says to him is you can go you know 
you can go to jail for you know five years or you can go home and that's it go right into him like and not even show like the first time he goes into room just move the camera over to show his face in a moment when he hears about like okay this character will go undercover in this way and this is how you'll do it and an extended debate about it and there's no scene where you see o'neill making his initial contact to hampton all you do is as you mentioned we see all these shots of Fred Hampton in action and the Panthers community outreach and you just see him lurking on the wide <laughs> at like the edge of the frame he's just lurking there this menace that you know is coming and this movie because obviously I knew where this train was headed before I sat down and watched the movie I mentioned to you um there's actually a Law and Order episode based on the assassination of Fred Hampton Really? Yes. Um, you didn't tell me about that, did you? Even, I know, like, the timing. You might be a little surprised by the timing, given that Law & Order came out decades after he was murdered. But anyway, so I had, like, a base familiarity with the story ever since I was a young child because of the Law & Order episode based on it. And so you know where this train is headed. And I think the director knows that... A lot of people seeing the movie, even if they don't have a deep knowledge of Fred Hampton or the Black Panthers, they know where this train is headed. Yeah. So he focuses on the most important stuff. And I love the way he handles O'Neill's entrance into the Black Panthers. Yeah, his entrance into the Black Panthers, he, like, well, he shows him as being, like, actually not, like, the smartest guy initially like he's someone who the first time he's in like one of these like kind of classroom sessions where fred hampton's trying to you know instruct everyone how you know what the protocol is going to be and what the plans are to try to do this and that in the community it's like william o'neill is like hitting on a girl and he you know fred Hampton's like hey we we don't do that with women here we like you know these are our sisters in arms or something like that yeah and william's like come on man and, like, Fred's like, you're going to do 20 push-ups. Yep. And so it's very serious. It's, like, suddenly, like, oh, man, I got... And then he finds... But then he realizes, okay, I'll try to do something that where I can be useful. And so it's, like, I'll be a driver. I'll get a car from the FBI. And, yeah. And it's funny how I suddenly think about how it never... The irony that Fred Hampton never learns or finds out that he's in, like, this car driving around that was... Not only being driven by an FBI informant, it was provided by the FBI. Yeah. And, and that <laughs> itself becomes its own kind of like subplot early on in the movie. And another thing I said that's really impressive about this movie is you need a very special type of actor to play William O'Neill because it's not a part. There's not a lot in the script, frankly, for the actor to work off of because in the entire movie... William O'Neill literally never has a moment where he can let his guard down and speak honestly to anyone. Mm -hmm. I said to you that I think it was very deliberate that we literally never see William O'Neill interacting with 
family members, a girlfriend, um, friends that are not part of the Panthers. He's every social interaction in the movie is either with the Panthers, where he's undercover, or with these racist FBI guys. So he can never speak honestly. Yeah. And because he can never speak honestly, there's never a point in the movie where he can lay out his thoughts and feelings via dialogue. Yes. And and the thing is, too, there are certain other parts where, as you say, I don't think the part's underwritten, but there are moments where another actor could lean into some of the cliche of it. Like, there are... You know, there are the couple. Of, there are a couple of scenes where you know William O'Neill has the you know I'm out. I can't take this anymore. You know, this is too much. You know, what have you got me into? Wait, there's another informant. Blah 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 blah, etc. You know, other details. I'm not going to get into. But like, you have the wrong actor in that moment, and they could go into the the cliche of it. But Lakeith Stanfield, he's like he has a lot of physical performance that he's putting into it. But he keeps it very, he's very tightly wound. And it's a good tightly wound. Yeah, he has to do it's, so much. It's on the eyes. Yeah, with just his eyes or his body language. And typically, I respond to performances that are a bit more dialogue driven. You know, I like talking movies. But I said to you, I felt like I was watching his, I felt like I was watching Lakeith Stanfield develop ulcers in real time. Yeah. And the sheer power of this performance, again, with just his eyes, the movements of his mouth, body language. Yeah. He conveys I... so much, even though he literally never has, like, a big scene where he's able to say, like, this is what I'm thinking and this and, is what I'm feeling. And I didn't think it so much the first time I saw the movie. Because the first time I was actually more pissed off at him for what he was doing and, you know, how he was, wasn't trying to get out of it. But the second time I realized, like, no, he, William O'Neill, again, he ultimately is, he does something unforgivable, um, you know, more maybe more than one unforgivable thing. But he's also, a, he's a victim of white supremacy. He's a, he's a victim of a racist, you know, ideology and policy that, you know, Jagger Hoover is the one who is orchestrating it all, but it's all set in place. And the white people, they might cringe a little at maybe a couple of the more direct things said, but they all know like, Oh no, we're doing this. We're, we're, we're absolutely going to equate the, the clan with the Panthers and not, you know, bad an eye. And, and, and the thing is, William O'Neill, you know, there's, you can, you know, because of what the writing is there and what Stanfield is doing, you can bring your, you can kind of bring your own thoughts into it and think about like, you know, how much does he know? Is he like just willfully ignorant? Was he just not raised well enough to know like what's going on with everything? And well, yeah, what I said to you after I saw this was, He's the villain of the movie. I mean, you said the movie's called Judas and the Black Messiah. So he's the villain uh, of the film yeah. in a way, but he was placed in an untenable situation by racist law enforcement. Because the other the other reason why he can't just come clean is 
And he has to face the fact if his, like, duplicity is revealed to the Panthers, he will be murdered. Yeah. Yeah, they make that very clear as well. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, even though there's some muddy things involving you know, what happened with that informant and the case and how that itself is a very dastardly bag of shit that the FBI is doing. So, yeah, I... When I was watching the movie, I was like, I can... If I was in his shoes, I probably would have made those same choices. Yeah. Well, I wanted to say, though, what... Why well, I think this movie... What the, there's almost kind of a radical act, though, that this filmmaker is doing... You know, in a sense, because we also talked about how, in a contrast, you know, Fred Hampton is shown actually as being pretty free in how he gets to act, you know, how he's, you know, not constrained, even though he's, you know, has all these issues that he's going to deal with. I mean, he goes to jail for a chunk of the movie, but, you know, the relationship he has with, uh, his girlfriend and also, you know, becomes the mother of his child. Like he is, you know, he's the free one in this story. He's the one who actually is, you know, for lack of a better word, being a revolutionary because he's actually trying to affect change. And for all the difficulties he's facing and all the people around him who are getting arrested or being killed, he's, you know, his mind is actually clear in what he's doing. Yeah, and I don't think it's an accident that the movie shows us a lot of Fred Hampton's life apart from being a revolutionary, and we literally never see O'Neill have a single social interaction yes. that's healthy and normal. I yeah. don't think that's an accident. You, you know what I think, in a way, what, why this movie's so effective? This is almost like, for the Black Panthers, what like the Americans was for like the Cold War. It's That's just such a good comparison. It's just showing you like what psychologically, you know, being you know, because basically William O'Neill was a spy. Yeah. You know, he was a spy in, in kind of the same way that you know that you had like people infiltrating uh, organizations like the uh, obviously in the Americans they do a lot. There are a lot of different characters. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of dress up, but. It has that same kind of thing about like what it does to you psychologically and how an actor can really show that and the joy we as an audience get in seeing that performed. Yeah, and of course, Daniel Kaluuya is amazing as Fred Hampton and mm -hmm. they do such a good job showing you the immense tragedy Yes. of this man's cold-blooded murder by the FBI. Yeah. I'm really glad, too, this movie does not mince words about what was done. Yeah. Yeah, it, it doesn't mince words, and also how it shows that. I mean, again, we're not... I'm not getting into spoilers and saying because it's part of history. Um, how Shaka...
Yeah, to talk about how Jesse Plemons is like an absolutely spectacular actor, but I love this scene where he has William O'Neill over to his home yes. and sits down with him and has a little talk with him about how, you know, he supports the civil rights movement yeah. and he investigated the clan the clan yeah that's why i brought before yeah, it. yeah that was murdering um individuals who wanted to register black people to vote and he was like jesse plemons gives this speech about how like he's one of the good ones basically mm -hmm. and then just finishes up with but the clan but you know the black panthers are just like the clan yeah and then that but he uses that later on too he'll, he'll yeah. he comes back to that and like he'll say, well, you know, didn't I tell you this? They're just like the clan. And it makes you now I have a question for you. Do you think now again he, he's a real person. He, maybe I don't know how he was in real life, but in the in this movie, do you think that Roy Mitchell he honestly believes that, or is he just like being full of shit? I think he believes it. Mm. I think he I think he believes sincerely that he is not racist, that he is, I think if you asked him and like inject him with truth serum and that actually worked, he would say like, I'm not racist at all. I don't have a racist bone in my body. And he would also say, I'm nothing like those people in the Jim Crow South. Mm. When really... You are exactly like those people. Well, and then, but then his assumptions get challenged directly in that, like, spine-chilling scene with Martin Sheen as Jagger Hoover. Yeah. You know, where he asks him, like, "Would you let your infant daughter date a Negro?" And yeah. he's just like, he's just sitting there at first. He's like, "How do I answer that?" And eventually, he actually says, "Like, he she won't." Yeah. And he doesn't follow up with that, but I feel like in that little moment. You know, like, yeah, he won't let his daughter date a black guy. <laughs> yeah, so I do, I do think that he is sincere in his conviction, mm -hmm. and also kind of like in Promising Young Woman, what the movie does is it does a good job of showing us the audience the stories people tell themselves to yes. get through the day. How it's, you know, in, in this case, how racism is so baked into, you know, that yeah. the ideology then, in particular in the FBI, that even if they don't think they're racist, they're, they're practicing, you know, absolute racist policy. Yeah. So I believe Jesse Plemet, like that character wakes up every day and thinks, I am a good person doing well, a good thing. Well, it's not only that, it's also, you know, clearly though, the FBI had to also know about, you know, the breakfast programs yeah. and the other stuff, but they're just like, no, we're looking at like the guns because, you know, and it's not said in the movie, but you know, what, pro you know, what set all this off was when in California, I think was a Huey Newton that led the group into like the state house building yeah you're thinking of the um gun control laws passed by california when I reagan was governor i apologize if i'm confusing if i'm conflating huey newton and bobby seal i don't know if they were together in that i i should i should know this i just listened to a podcast about this damn my white brain <laughs> <laughs> 
But no, I know. But what my you're but my point is though, this movie is absolutely spectacular. It's and it also is just exciting as a movie. Like yeah. it, it's riveting. Like and there are scenes where there you know there are shootouts with the cops that are staged incredibly well. Uh, just little moments like again we talked about how you know Stanfield's performance. Sometimes the director will just have a moment where he'll be you know acting very pissed off about something around the Panthers and then get into his car and still be like talking to himself and the way that the camera is positioned and getting Stanfield you're wondering like is he really into this like the performance he's putting on you know is he really disappearing into this Black Panther person oh you've You've got to think he is to some degree because we're told when the Black Panther's office is blown up, we are told he spent more time than anyone else building it back up. Yes. He was practically living there. So I do think he was sincerely torn. Yeah. Yeah. Sincerely, or, and and, and, and at, at the least about Fred Hampton. Yeah. And what he's asked to do. Like, you know, it's... Uh, and when you find and when you get to that that scene that involves like him, you know, giving Fred Hampton a drink, a certain drink, it's like, oh my god. It's horrifying. Like it's... you're you're I can still feel like the imprint your arm left, your hand left from gripping my arm in that moment. Yeah, it is well, it's yeah, it's a great movie. We loved it. Yes. And it's on each I, well, I it's was going to say, not HBO Max no, anymore. it's not on HBO Max anymore. It is still in theaters if you do still want to see it. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming maybe it'll come to DVD at some point. Uh, you know, we should be saying where you could see these movies. But again, we have been saying as we've been going along, um, Promising Young Woman, by the way, is now on DVD. Um, I believe the father's maybe you can get that on demand, but that's also in theaters. Um but that leads us to our last movie. Num- your number one. My number one. And probably, when I think about it, this is probably either my number two or number three movie of last of 2020. Now, when I, I sit down and think about it, um, and I was happy. I got actually got to see this in uh, IMAX, <laughs> of all things. Uh, and, then, and then I watched most of it again with you on Hulu. Which is Nomadland. This movie, it's a marvel that this movie is as good as it is. I feel like this movie could have gone bad so easy because it's very low key and it's extremely, let's just say, not plot driven. No, no, it's not. And to that point, like, and for those who don't know, like, and I don't know if it's based on a book. I'd be curious to check out the book one day. It's. Um, Francis McDormand is uh, his character Fern, and she is uh, uh, someone who was living in this town with her husband. Uh, it was kind of all, everybody in the town was working kind of for basically this big one big factory that shut down after the financial collapse. Yeah, it was a company town called yeah, Empire co- Nevada, which is you know. You can't make up that kind of thing. That sounds like that almost sounds like something out of uh, like Welcome to Night Vale or something <laughs> like that. In the people in the town of Empire Nevada, 
the giant cloud is coming back to rain frogs on you today. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, Empire Nevada. Um, so she, uh, you know, she hasn't had much left in her life. So she look, she gets a trailer and she, as the title suggests, she's kind of like a quote unquote nomad. She's basically part, you know, trying to get work where she can. Um, you know, times she's working for Amazon, other times she's, uh, you know, maybe working in like a, you know, a cafe or something like trying to get little jobs where she can. And it's just, and she follows her and the people that she meets. And that's basically the movie. Like, it's not much more complicated than that. Like, you know, and, and at one point she, you know, meets, uh, another guy who's kind of out they're uh, played by David Strathern. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. I never know how to pronounce his name. Is it David Strathern? Is it David Strathern? I, I hope I, I always got that just right. say Strathern and hope yeah. for the best. Yeah. Um, David uh, strengthens. Um, <laughs> yeah. And what you have going for it in this movie, uh, the director, Chloe Zhao, she, her previous movie, she made a film called The Writer. Um, which also has a bit of this tone, even though it's uh, you know not quite as expansive. That movie was about like basically a guy, a man and his horse, and you know he, this guy gets kind of injured, and this horse kind of basically helps to heal him in a way, or you know he helps heal the horse. It's very like this bond between the two, you know, man and beast type of story, and and I went into it not knowing anything about it. And I left thinking like, Oh my God, this is one of the best films I've seen this year. Like, it's like, this is a new voice. This is someone who understands, like I can just be close to this person and show like how showing someone's humanity is all you have to do. And that's what you also get in Nomadland. You're just seeing in almost like kind of a neo-realistic style, you know, what, you know, life on the road is kind of like, it's, it's like, uh, if you brought back the type of, you know, films that you got from, uh, um, you know, the Italians, like the bicycle thief, only here you have Francis McDormand. And like some of those Italian neo-realist films, Chloe Zhao uses some non-professional actors in this film, which is always kind of a dicey prospect. But in this film, the non-professionals are, great yeah and what's they're absolutely great and i was hearing a little bit about what went into the making of the movie and how um you know what she would do like a lot not all the movie but some of the movie was not scripted like there were scenes like the scenes with her and david strathern and there's another actress who plays like um fern's sister at one point like she goes to visit like her sister and she has scenes with them those scenes are scripted but like the people who, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name. There's like an older woman. She kind of befriends, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Like that person was just like Chloe Zhao basically sat with her for a couple of days and basically got her life story and used some of the things that she told her and put it into the script. So it wasn't like this person was really memorizing dialogue and reciting it. She was basically just telling her story and there are a lot of people in this who are just saying their stories and i assume like there's one moment where fern's sitting down with this young guy and she like tells him a poem and i have to assume that that was something that 
Francis McDormand brought to the movie. And, um, and it's interesting because like when I heard, I heard an interview with Francis McDormand where she said that, you know, she normally doesn't do these kind of improv type movies. She really usually likes the script, but in this case, because she was working so much with Chloe Zhao to, you know, to, to develop this character and to, you know, really just explore it almost, you know, in a, in a sense, almost even like in a political way, like it, she was able to find a way in and, you know, not have to say everything that was scripted and come up with her own lines and behavior. And, and God, she, what a, what a performance. Absolutely amazing. Uh, I mean, I said, I'm almost a little disappointed that she already has two Oscars. Cause I think that's going to prevent her from winning an Oscar for this performance, yeah. which she richly deserves. And I feel like it's a movie like this. It's almost hard to put into words. What's so great about it. I feel like it's the kind of movie that like, you just kind of need to see and it speaks for itself. Yeah. Well, and it's also another movie kind of like Minari in a way that just is, showing you what life in America is like without needing to, um, you know, put a lot of like big exclamation points on it. Yeah. You know, like, which is why, you know, I think if anything, like the thing that holds most of these movies, uh, together, you know, and there, there are exceptions, but like a lot of these movies seem to be about like the American experience Yeah, in all their, you know, very, screwed up like twisted ways so this is the donald glover this is america slate of <laughs> yeah well i mean more i mean Jews of the black messiah is probably the closest to that song but yeah but in a lot of ways yeah yeah pretty much i think like the father is the only movie that doesn't really fit into that yeah well I mean, the sound of metal. I don't know if you that that's a little bit more of a universal type of movie. I, I don't think that's necessarily American, but uh, yeah, yeah. But a lot, and and especially the fact that again with Nomadland, you know, she's you know she's someone who again is directly she was affected by that you know what what happened with uh, the financial collapse, but. It also you eventually learn though more about her and that she act also was um, like someone who uh, kind of she also does embrace this kind of way of life. Yeah, and it fills certain emotional needs for her because we learn from literally the very first scene in the movie that she's not over the death of her husband, and she'll probably yeah. never really be over the death of her husband because her very uh -huh. first scene in the movie is her, like, sniffing one of his jackets. And... Yeah, and and that helps, I think, too, because even though this isn't very, this isn't a plot-heavy movie, you do need an emotional through line, and I think that helps you to keep that together. Like, there are even just the, the fact of, certain special objects that she's kept mm -hmm. from her life, you know, in the past and her life with him, like that ends up being kind of like a good setup and payoff at times. Yeah. So she's a very restrained, very no nonsense, get to work type of character. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't emote all over the place, 
but her grief is this kind of consistent through line to the movie. And I felt throughout how much she ached for him. And then it made me think, of course, about how utterly devastated I would be if something ever happened to you. Aw, well, likewise. You know, I mean, unlike her, I don't know if I would just, like, sit in, you know, be naked in, like, a big, like, thing of water. <laughs> no, I could not live the nomad life. No, no, that's the other thing I thought about, too. Yeah, I, I don't think I could be that self-sufficient. Um, but that's the other thing that, again, it's... And also, just little things in the movie stylistically, I love the music. Yes. It's a beautiful score to this movie. And and also another thing to mention, too, that I didn't realize, um, that Chloe Zhao also edited the movie. And the, there's rhythms in this film that are just extraordinary. How, like, she'll cut to certain moments with people or, you know, how she'll show Fern in certain environments. Um, like, there's this one part where she's in, like, a gigantic, like, mega trailer park or something mm. um and uh and it's also it's and i think it's funny too to think about how just you know the big corporations you know they, they don't have product placement in a movie like this and yet amazon is such a big part of this movie and um what there's when she goes to that trailer park do you remember there's a it's almost like a sponsored park for, from like a corporation. Yeah. And I wish I remembered the name of it, but like that itself is part of the American experience. And even if you don't re re acknowledge it, it's just there. I, what I thought was fascinating about this movie too, was we see the nomad life both as a way of avoiding intimacy, like Fern is offered the opportunity to stay in a permanent environment multiple times. Mm. She runs into a friend at the beginning of the movie whose kid she used to tutor. And this friend says, come stay with us. Her sister says, come stay with us. David Stratham settles down with his family and he says to her, come stay with me. So she's offered these opportunities to settle down and we get the impression that she's someone who has wanderlust to her. So in a way, the nomad life is shown as a way to avoid intimacy. Yet on the other hand, she forms these very intense bonds with these people she's only going to know briefly. And there's this great scene where she's talking to another guy in one of the camps. And he says that the nomad life is kind of beneficial to him psychologically because he knows when he says goodbye to someone it's never permanent mm. that he always that he knows there's always the chance that they're going to see each other again which is kind of psychologically beneficial to him because mm. he's mourning the death of his son that's an interesting point too it's like it's a way of almost channeling grief yeah and in almost like a Without saying it directly in this kind of word, it's almost like a form of therapy. Yeah, I really think it is because it's a tough life. The jobs are hard. The conditions are rough. I'm... You know, imagine if also, like, I imagine they don't have health insurance. No, I you know, mean... You if they got hurt or injured, you know, there's even one part where they show that she has, like, an issue, some kind of issue with her 
trailer and they actually like she goes to a mechanic and they give her the price and it's like oh my god like is she gonna give up the trailer yeah i mean i'm soft i couldn't live her life for a day oh well you don't drive i don't drive (laughs) which would kind of hurt my ability to be a nomad my inability to drive but yeah but um but no you make an excellent point about yeah that it's like it's this very intimate movie about someone who is like this contradiction when it comes to intimacy. She can't keep rooted too long. Yeah. But at the same time, she, you know, is, you know, it's also just, she's a good person. Yeah. I like, you know, it's nice to see like someone in a movie who's a genuinely good person and she wants to care about others and stuff, even though again, she's, you know, on the go. And that's something that help that helps us to really feel for her as well. She's not somebody who's, you know, insanely selfish or, you know, has these problems. You know, if she just is, uh, you know, her, her complications are more about just things that she mode of intimacy where you flee connection with the people that should be your bedrocks and you have these fleeting yet intense connections yeah it's like um well it's almost well but but it's it's funny because i suddenly just flashed in my head that movie uh brief encounter i don't know who that is didn't you watch that with me it's the it's the classic British movie from David Lean, Trevor Howard, and, uh, um, oh, why am I blanking on her name now? Like, oh, someone, I know my mom's going to be, like, screaming right now into her phone, like, why, I'm not remembering the name. But that's, like, about, you know, like, a man and woman who meet and, like, have a very intense emotional connection, but then, like, they have to leave each other. But, like, in that case, they, you know, they don't think they're ever going to meet again in this case but as you said that is the good point that there are these intense bonds but with the thought that we may meet again yeah and also i think another thing another kind of contradiction in that nature in that way is the nomad life obviously requires a great deal of self-sufficiency you have to be very self-contained and independent yet Mm -hmm you also have at times these strong like communal bonds yes you have those bonds and the other thing i want to mention too about the direction that is that there are certain times where chloe Zhao will emphasize something in the environment around fern that may have some metaphorical significance or it might not again i would need i would want to watch the movie again to to maybe study it and i'm sure you know there'll be like dissertations written on this movie for like years to come but like there's certain times where like she'll be by like a big ocean and i feel like how chloe Zhao shows the roiling waves you know it's like even though fern is very much like a almost seem like not taciturn but she's very like not showing a lot of her emotions sometimes the environment around her maybe is indicating what might be going on somewhere inside her yeah 
That's exactly what I thought. I think Fern is the personification of the phrase, still waters run deep. Hmm. I think there is a core of deep feeling there. Yeah. But it can't be expressed in typical ways. Mm. So were you ever a kid and like someone told you if you were upset about something, use your words. Um, I guess. <laughs> well, Fern, I feel like there are times where Fern can't use her words. Mm. So yeah, the environment is a stand in for the vastness of her experiences because really every person no matter how ordinary, no matter how basic, has these experiences that to them feel just as important as like the vastness of the universe. Wow, that's pretty deep. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, ch check out like, uh... <laughs> we've entered into the philosophical realm. I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> but that's another kind of contradiction in the movie is that a lone person in, like, a giant vista feels maybe small and insignificant. But I thought all the nature photography was a way of externalizing yes. the deep feelings of a person who didn't verbalize them yes. traditionally. Yes, ways. exactly. And that's why I think, you know, that's one of the great things about this film as, you know, the Chloe, as Chloe Zhao's director gets at, where she can, again use those images and feelings and the music to emphasize all that without necessarily having to put any words into her. Like there, like narration would have like killed this movie. Yeah. And I'm, I'm someone who I think is more open to narration than the typical moviegoer, mm -hmm. but this would not have been, man, yeah. it's going to be wild though. Seeing Chloe Zhao go from this to a Marvel movie, which is next up. Yeah. I mean, you, like, how is that going to work tonally? Like, I, you know, because usually, you know, we hear about how some, you know, directors on these movies, you know, they don't really have necessarily the total control over, like, the action set pieces. A lot of times that's pre-visualized by another unit. Like, is she going to take control and visualize her own action? Or, you know, is are we going to get, like, you know, a you know, like a almost Terrence Malicky looking movie for parts of it and then get into like, you know, a Russo style like fight scene. Yeah, I, I am, I mean, I cannot wait to see what, let's just say like, she have to demonstrate a lot of versatility as a director. Because <laughs> I'm just, I'm watching Nomadland and I loved it and I'm like, this is a, it's a long way away from the MCU. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm very curious about that. That's going to be that that could either work very well or it could be I don't know, it could be something I don't think it'll be a disaster. Like it'll if it's a failure, it'll be intensely interesting as a failure. Yeah. And if I it if it doesn't fit. Like yeah. it could be like Dune. I <laughs> know you haven't seen David Lynch's Dune, but you kind of know what I mean as soon as I say that. It's yes. like, wait, how can the director of Eraserhead make a big sci-fi epic? Well, there you go. Uh, so, yeah, any final thoughts about Nomadland? It was really good. Yeah, it was re Do you wish you'd seen it in the theater? 
I do think it would have benefited from the theatrical it, experience. Yeah. Also, this is a movie that I'm not saying this with judgment because I struggle with it too. You cannot be on your phone when you're watching this movie. Yeah. You no. absolutely cannot. Yeah, don't be on your phone for this movie. Yeah, don't be on your phone for, you know, like I'd actually say for the you know the top three movies I mentioned for Nomad Land, Juice, and the Black Messiah, and Sound of Me- and Metal. You know, d- please put your phone away. In particular, for Sound of Metal, you want to be paying attention to how you know the director is combining like the visual with with the sound. Yeah. Um, Charles Charles Chicago Seven. Be on your phone all you want. That movie's made. <laughs> To be on your phone. That that's a movie where you can like, you know, be on Wikipedia looking up the real information and like thinking like, wait, what is this? And oh, and one last thing about that movie. You know, the movie's nominated for best original screenplay. <laughs> huh. I'm not gonna lie. I was on my phone a bit for Mank because you saw Mank in the theater, but I watched it at home. Mm. Mank. All right, we've talked a long time. Yes, we've shared guys. many thoughts about these movies. Yes, that is our talk about the eight nominees for Best Picture. If uh, if any of you have seen these movies and have your thoughts you want to share with us, please you know don't hesitate to email wagescinema at gmail dot com. Uh, we'll try to read it next time uh, we're on doing podcasting. Uh, you know, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, if you want to send us a message there. Um, you know, don't mail things to our house. Actually, we don't give out our address. No. <laughs> I wonder if I, I... Man, I remember when I was a kid, you used to have, like, you know, for the fan club type thing. You know, send a post self-addressed stamp postcard to a P.O. Box uh, so-and-so. <laughs> oh, I miss those days. <laughs> Maybe not. All right, we are done. Yes. And... The Wages of Cinema will return. Yeah, but no, <laughs> you got to finish it up with your closing phrase. We've been off so long. Oh, no. Have I forgotten? Phrase. The Wages of Cinema is death. Hugged. Oh, no. Okay. Hug. Hug. <laughs> Hug. Hug of death. Ah. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.